I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. Your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. This is episode number 154. Today in the show, Dan and I are joined by Kevin Marrow, a bow hunter from Pennsylvania and host of the Trad Geeks podcast. And we're going to talk about bow hunting whitetails, traditional archery, dealing with target panic, and much, much more. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today on the show, Dan and I are joined by Kevin Marrow, a bow hunter from Pennsylvania and the host of the Trad Geeks podcast. And today I'm hoping we can talk to Kevin about chasing Pennsylvania whitetails and the trad part of his podcast name, that being traditional archery. Uh, I'd, I'd say every year now, I keep hearing more and more about people dabbling with trad gear, kind of adding that to what they're doing, and a number of my good friends have too. So we're hoping to pick Kevin's brain today a bit about what that change has been like for him, what other things hunters should consider if they're trying to add this to their archery game, and a whole lot more of that. So I don't know about you, Dan. I'm uh, I'm personally too partial to my compound to try traditional, but I know a lot of guys are interested in it, so uh, it should be an interesting conversation. Yeah, I tell you, the first person that I'm going to call when I ever do make the switch, it's not going to happen in the near future, obviously, but uh, I might pick one up for fun. But the first person that I'm going to call is today's guest. Well, uh, that's perfect because we're going to make that call here soon. And uh, and he's just a good dude. Kevin's a good guy. And I think there's going to be some interesting things to talk about when it comes to whitetails and some of his Western trips. And uh, I don't know. He's also a hunter podcaster father like you so we might be able to pick his brain about that too yep the the podcast minds are going to meet today yes that's going to be that's going to be the game plan but uh before all that what's what's going on with you man i mean whoa i had a cup just a swig of coffee that went down the wrong pipe right there (laughs) however we were talking we were talking before we started (laughs) recording how early on in the podcast, you know, like three years ago or whatever it was, we were young and so sprightly. We would start every podcast saying, oh, what kind of beer you got? And you got this beer and you got this beer and we were pretty cool. And now it's like, how many cups of coffee have you had to drink today? <laughs> <laughs> More than uh, the doctor's recommendation, I tell you uh-huh. that. 
I know. I was I was kind of dragging this afternoon. I literally just got my cup of coffee off the machine and ran in the room in time for you to call. So, so what were you gonna say? <laughs> I don't know. I, I've been shooting my bow, and I am. I don't know. I'm just excited to start shooting again. I put it down almost for six months, you know, uh, the bow down to be honest with you. And now I'm picking it back up again, starting to get, uh, the, you know, the sights sighted in, I'm using a one pin where I have to put one of those, uh, tapes on it. You know, you, you shoot it at 20, then you shoot it at, uh, 60. And then that tells you what, uh, what tape you need to put or what label you need to put on your, uh, on your site and then I'll start honing, really honing it in there. And, uh, actually after this podcast today, I'm going to go, um, visit my buddy Mitch at, uh, the bow shop and he's going to be building some arrows for me. I'm going and I'm going four fletches this year. Really? Interesting. Yep. What's the reasoning there? Well, I hear from all the talk that I've had on my podcast that four fletch really steadies the arrow out um, in flight, uh, creates a little bit more drag, which means that the arrow becomes straighter. And that you know, like you've ever, you've seen an arrow come off a bow slow motion, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's all you know flimsy and going all over. The the fletchings are what they do is they straighten that out. They stop that from happening. And if you put add some guys believe that four fletches will make that happen faster. And so that's my goal. Basically it slows the arrow down a bit, but it creates a straighter arrow, uh, a better flight. And, uh, that's the, that's the hope anyway. Nice. You have to keep me posted on how that goes. Accuracy. That's the main, that's the goal. Yeah. Got to put the arrow where you want it. That's the fact, my man. I've been, I've been doing the same thing. Actually been out shooting yeah. behind the house and, Feels good. Feels good to be yeah. shooting and dropping the dropping the arrow in the bullseye. And uh, man, there's and I, we we talk about every week. It's probably annoying, but I'm just so excited. Um, yeah. And again, you know, it's just this time of year for whatever reason. When it starts feeling like summer, it just it just starts. I feel like it's that new phase of the year. And just right. standing, sitting behind the house in the yard, shooting the bow. Watching the the crops popping up around me and just like thinking about you know it's not gonna be too long now I'm gonna be in a tree, um, yeah I'm just yeah. I'm I'm raring to go I've been doing a ton of whitetail stuff lately, um, all this well not well I don't know a bunch of the stuff we talked about last week on the podcast mm-hmm. I've been executing on so nice over the weekend I pulled a stand and hung a new stand up in um in one of those locations I mentioned to you where I'd seen Holyfield pop out a few times along that field edge but I never had a yep. permanent set there so I got that yep. hung up and trimmed out and all set and another one of the stands that I saw Holyfield from a number of times where I got to full draw on him um I improved that stand location a little bit by going there and adding more cover around my stand so that I would just be even more secluded. So I got that set up. Um, I started digging in one of my water holes, um, got that partially buried. It was just a little bit too wet to get it all the way in. It was like standing water in the area I wanted it right now. Everything's like super, super, super flooded. Yeah. Same here. Um, so once it dries out, I'll get that buried all the way and, um, and I killed the turkey. Yeah, I saw that. Congrats, man. Thank you, sir. I was able to fill it in like the fourth to last day of the season. So 
Isn't turkey hunting fun? Just something to pass the time. It is fun. It is fun. I uh, I had a I had a weird season because I was gone for most of it, so I just had I only actually went out myself twice. Um, the other four times I went out, I was uh, guiding people, but um, but I got done. So that's fun. Gonna start a outfit fitting deal out of your house <laughs> well so far everyone i've got quote unquote guided has been a friend or family um, i gotcha but so you're currently not charging is cur- what, I'm cur- at. what i'm saying is cur- <laughs> currently not charging but the point i'm trying to get to is that nobody would really pay me so <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> i wouldn't be worth the price we have a 10 percent success rate yeah it's uh it's been it's been some good years and some bad years this year was a little tough but uh right but I actually, I actually played. I had, I had my buddy calling most of the time for me this week, and I went out with my friend Andy, and um, we were kind of running and gunning on some different property that a, a buddy of mine owns, and um, just uh, tried some new spots and had to hit a couple different farms because they weren't talking at all on another on the first place we went to, but the second spot we we heard some gobbling far off, and I got set up, and Andy got on the call for this one, and it worked out, and actually a hen came out and she started making a bunch of noise. And so we started going back and forth with her and that was enough to get the, get the boys excited and they came in and rolled one. So fried Turkey coming up soon. Delish. Yeah. So Turkey season is done. White tails are in the white tails are in the future. So did you get anything white tail related done this weekend? No, I talked about it. <laughs> I, I tell you what, we had planned to go fishing uh, this weekend, and the water was just way too high on the river. So we stayed home, got a lot of stuff around the house done. Um, I mean, it was nice enough to where we were outside a lot. I was just playing. I just spent a lot of time with the family. Now, either this weekend or the next weekend, I will be setting up trail cameras and um yeah, so that's the goal in the next couple of weeks. I checked one. I checked one trail camera. Nothing. I mean, it's a it's a property that's kind of secondary. A couple two year old bucks from based on their body size. Nothing. Nothing worth talking about. And uh, you know, I'm in I'm in a holding pattern until I can get out and go set cams up. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to get mine up too. I'm probably gonna do that here soon. And. I've got access to a couple spots that I think might be where Holyfield summers. Um, okay. So I'm going to put some cameras out there and see if I can confirm that suspicion. Do you and, have any uh, uh, velvet pictures of him ever? Never. Not once. Ooh, okay. Yeah, so so hoping, his his core range shifts. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he I, I've never seen him before September. Okay. I think the last two years, it's been like September. Uh, let me think about this. I don't know, maybe second week of September that I've started seeing him and getting pictures of him. Um, so yeah, we got to get some velvet pictures. We got to see what this big boy looks like this year. Oh, I bet you he's two fifty. <laughs> I wouldn't go that far, <laughs> <laughs> but I like the optimism. Right, right. So exciting stuff ahead, my friend. But uh, we're gonna have to uh, we're gonna have to shut up here and get our guest on the line because uh, we started a little late today. So. Let's pause for our Sitka story, and then we will give Kevin a call. For this week's Sitka story, we're joined by Andy Orr from Deer Society, who tells us about an encounter with a southern Iowa buck that was desperately looking for a fight. So the story of this hunt begins 
Um, it's November 4th. Uh, one of my pro staff guys, Tanner Hartman, and I were headed out to uh, hunt together. It was my turn to film, so I'm in the camera seat. He's hunting. Tyler Tanner decides he's going to rattle, so he grabs black racks, starts cracking them together, and um, just next thing you know, 25 yards away, here's this tree. The top of this tree just starts shaking. And Tanner and I are just, you know, having fits because we can't see what buck it is. It's all honeysuckle and thick and trying to figure out, you know, what deer is this that we're, we're hearing over here or seeing this tree shake. And he starts easing towards us and starts to come clear of the brush. And I can see it's a good 10-pointer. Tanner picks him up. And the buck passed right through the shooting lane that he had before he really even made a decision whether or not he was going to shoot him. He just wasn't sure if it was a buck that was that was old enough. You know, is this a, a three-year-old or a four-year-old or a five-year-old? Who is it? And so the buck passes through that shooting lane and goes about 70, 80 yards down the ridge. Um, Tanner, I, I whispered to Tanner, you know, hit him again with the black rack, see if he'll turn around. And he cracked the horns together, and that buck just, you know, right on camera, just turned on a dime, came straight back to us comes right through the same shooting lane and stops tanner had no shot at it incredibly close to sending an arrow but he didn't have a shot that he was comfortable with through all the stick stuff so the buck moves on and same thing again tanner decides you know i'm going to see if i can rattle him back so he grabs the black racks for the third time rattles them together and that buck turned around at about 60 yards and came right back to us really really cool encounter because he stopped at about 11 yards and was just looking all around and looked up into the tree at us, you know, looking at us, looking around, looking left, looking right, and just completely relaxed, stopped him and put a perfect strike on him, just just a beautiful shot, buckling about 50 yards, and uh, KO'd in the timber, and just an amazing, amazing morning to be out in the timber, you know, and uh, just, just couldn't have been any happier with the way sick could perform for us, just amazing. On Andy's hunt, which can be seen on the Pursuit Channel in July, he was wearing Sitka's Stratus jacket and pants. If you'd like to create a Sitka story of your own, or to learn about Sitka's technical hunting apparel, visit SitkaGear.com. Alright, here with us now is Kevin Merrow. Welcome to the show, Kevin. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to uh, tell you, everyone listening, that Dan Johnson just told us that Kevin Merrow is the Cameron Haynes of the traditional archery community. So, <laughs> is that true? What a joke. No, absolutely not. It's, I'm sure it's posted somewhere, right? I, I've had to have read it somewhere. I, I, I highly doubt that. I'm not, I'm not in the shape that Cameron Haynes is, although I try, you know. He, he's definitely got me and Dan beat, that's for sure. <laughs> so Yeah, most people have me beat. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> so, Kevin, you know, we briefly introduced you at the top of the show, but um, can you give us a quick lowdown, who you are, what you do, um, what you do in the whitetail world, what you think about all this deer stuff? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first off, as they said, my name's Kevin Marrow. I'm from uh, western Pennsylvania, specifically Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, it's the home of the groundhog, unfortunately. But that's what put that's what puts us on the map, I guess. Uh-huh. Uh, born and raised here, lived here all my life. I'm a chiropractor by profession, and on the side, I run a, a small business for the industry, uh, tradgeeks.com. It's basically around traditional archery. Uh, grew up hunting here in Pennsylvania with my father. 
just eager to get into the woods at a young age. Primarily grew up rifle hunting until around 16. Uh, my dad never archery hunted, but I I felt that rifle season didn't give me enough time in the woods. So that that kind of drew my interest into archery. Learned learned pretty much everything on my own uh, and hunted with a compound for for all those years up until like six or seven years ago. And I made the transition into traditional archery. Um, but yeah, you know, whitetail is primarily what we hunt here in Pennsylvania, small private parcels primarily. And the deer don't get like they do in Iowa. Um, but (laughs) there's still, you can still get some, you know, good deer here in the States. So that's about it. So, so I feel like if there's any other state that can relate to Michigan, I feel like Pennsylvania is the one for for a couple of reasons. Number one, and you're gonna have to correct me on all this if I'm wrong, but from everything I see and read, Pennsylvania matches Michigan when it comes to hunting pressure and participation. Tremendous number of hunters, and then number two, it matches Michigan as far as tradition. There's a really, really, really strong tradition of deer hunters and deer hunting in Michigan, and my uncle grew up in Pennsylvania, and he has a deer camp back in PA, and I've gone there and visited and, and, and hunted with him a couple times way back in the day. And uh, from everything I gather from there and from that situation, it seems like Pennsylvania has a very similar culture and tradition there. Is that true? Do you guys have a really unique, strong culture there and tradition when it comes to whitetails? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, primarily, I would I would call it, you know, we call it the Orange Army and and there's a lot of small small camps and and guys get together for rifle season and and hunt with pushing deer and driving deer on small small parcels. Um, but yeah, absolutely, I would I would relate it to Michigan and New York rather closely. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, me specifically, I didn't come from a a big family of a lot of hunters. It was primarily my dad and my brother and I uh, going out together. But yeah, that. It sounds very similar to Michigan and uh, Upper New York, but yeah, and very different from Iowa. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Although I haven't made it to Iowa, um, you know, I I have hunted a little bit um, and scouted in Ohio a little bit, like in areas like that, but not like Iowa. Yeah, I, I was gonna save this to the end of the episode. But I just can't hold it in anymore. We have a special surprise for you today, Kevin. You (laughs) have been given full access to Dan's hunting properties in Iowa, full rain. (laughs) I can't hear you guys. (laughs) What? I'm pretty sure Dan already gave me the invite. He said, just get a tag and get out here. But I I have not even, I I don't even tell that. I wouldn't tell that to my wife. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, You got to hold on to that, uh, your honey hole, Dan. (laughs) Uh, That's funny. But uh, PA deer hunting. Tell me a little bit about what the deer are like there. Um, and, and let's talk a little bit about the differences here because, I, you know, most often we've got guys here on the podcast who are hunting Iowa or Illinois or Kansas or Ohio. Um, a lot of people chase deer like that. A lot of people talk about deer in those areas. Not as many people talk about, you know, spots like Michigan or Pennsylvania. Um, yeah. So just tell us a little bit. Can you tell us a little bit about what the deer 
I don't know. What, what's it like there? How is it different than some of the things we see on TV? I would, I would say it's definitely different primarily because of the small parcels and the pressure. Pressure being number one. Uh, there's so many hunters in the woods compared to, you know, out west or in Iowa, I would assume. I don't know the numbers or all the statistics, but the pressure's super high and the parcels are small. I grew up hunting uh, you know, very rural areas, like close to towns, um, and a lot of just, you know, population. So for me, I grew up hunting really small parcels that it took more of the, these deer were hard to pattern because they're always getting bumped by people or traffic or whatever the case may be. Now you can find bigger parcels and big, you know, state game lands here in Pennsylvania. Microphone, but um, yeah, it's it's harder harder to have success in those areas, just like anywhere else. So I've stuck to little little parcels and been successful um, on those areas. So it, you can't pattern it, pattern them as well. It's primarily just you know scent control and uh, setting up on heavy trails and, and hoping for the best. Um, since then, you know, and that was kind of growing up. Since then, I've been fortunate enough to purchase my own property and and lease a property next to that. So now I have 130 acres and I can start to do a little more quality deer management with that, uh, food plots and hinge cutting and and kind of creating a scenario that's going to work for me. That's but awesome. With that, with that set around that 130 acres, I have a lot of Amish. So the Amish here in Pennsylvania don't like to follow the laws. Uh, they don't pay attention to trespassing signs or anything like that. So, it, you know, the first few years I spent a lot of time just getting to know the community and, and letting them know where I stand with everything. So it's kind of calmed down now, but it's really hard to even do, you know, what you see these other guys doing with management uh, because of that situation. The deer here are getting poached a lot. Uh, so there's a lot of pressure from the Amish on the roads. So what you find is the deer are very skittish and, you know, they do not tolerate any pressure whatsoever. So last year I had a, a nice buck, you know, probably 130 inches and and in Pennsylvania, that's a really, you know, acceptable deer, um, had them patterned on my property, my new property. And was getting trail cam pictures of him every morning. Was waiting for the the right wind to go in and kill him because I knew exactly where he was betting. And uh, I I waited. I think it was like the second or third week of archery season when I got that northwest wind. It was a crazy year. We had a lot of southeast winds the first couple of weeks, if I recall correctly. And so, anyways, I waited for that right wind, went in to kill him, and he never showed up. And you know, I listened to your podcast you know, all the time and things that Dan Infold have said, I, I really like to try to follow his, his mindset. Cause I think it's a cool way of hunting. Mm-hmm. He didn't show up and I just knew it was wrong. I knew something was wrong. I, I should have seen him. Well, luckily I had a camera set up in that bedding area for a couple of months, uh, that I never went to check. So I, I just said heck with it. And I went and checked it and sure enough, a, a boy, an Amish boy and two dogs went down through the property um, a couple of days prior to me hunting it, this, this barn 
burnt down over the hill from my property. So the Amish were using my property to cut back and forth to help rebuild this barn. Oh, geez. And uh, he was bumped and I have yet to lay eyes on him since then. But, you know, things like that are happening all the time here, which I'm, you know, I know that happens other places, but uh, the big thing is they do not tolerate the pressure in Pennsylvania. Like I, I think they maybe tolerate more other places. Um, I know this isn't, I don't know if this is the direction that we're, we want to go with this, but I've heard similar things said about those people, yeah. by, you know, by others. Right. So what happens mm-hmm. when you go and you try to confront them or you talk with them about, Hey, do not go on my property. You know, do not, you know, please don't do it. You know, you probably start off nice. What's, what's their reaction like? Well, I did a lot of investigating with other people that ran into this issue here in Pennsylvania and what, what the best approach was to take. Um, what I found is they, they don't really care about, uh, the loss. So if you call the state police and have them knock on their door, they'll just pay the fine They They don't worry about it too much. They feel that any deer is their deer and they have the right to go anywhere to hunt it. So they don't follow the laws one. Um, so I didn't want to take that approach. Uh, the first approach I took obviously was confronting them, telling them nicely to stay off the property. If they didn't want to listen to that, I would take the next approach. So I did the first approach. They didn't listen. I caught them a second time on it, coon hunting in the middle of the night. I ran them down on my quad and, and caught a handful of them, probably eight different Amish that night. Jeez. Um, and told them once again sternly to stay off. And that didn't work either. So I came up with kind of a, a different approach, you know, thinking outside the box. How can I work this in my favor? So I started treating the Amish professionally as a chiropractor in the community out of uh, a little like tax shop. You know, they sell, you know, all kinds of goods and foods. So I'd go in there on my Tuesday nights after work and treat the Amish only to get to know them. Um, I got some financial kickbacks with that. And, and my main thing was to get to know everybody in the community. And very quickly I got to know, uh, they, I forget what they call them, but the, the head guy of the, the Amish, um, pretty much is the law in that community. So they do respect them. And I got to know him very well and told him what was going on. The The big thing is the Amish don't like to get their pictures taken. They say it like affects their soul or something. So I saved all my trail cam photos of them and took them to the head guy. And he told me exactly who it was. And through that connection and getting to know the community, I'm very well respected now in the community. So it was kind of a different way I had to approach it, but the law, like going to the state police and stuff like that didn't seem to affect what they wanted to do at all. Any issues since then? No, I haven't. Wow. That I'm aware of, you know, um, I did, there was that one issue where it was the, the most important one is when they, that young boy went through the property with the dogs. Um, and he was just, they were just kind of using it as a shortcut to help build that barn at that time. Uh, 
you know, so now I catch them walking around and walking the ridge, but just that one time. And he was a, he was a young kid. He's probably 12 years old, you know, so there's not much I can do there other than I did approach his parents and, and they're aware of the situation, but it seems to have been a lot better. I'm, I didn't catch anyone hunting on the property this year, which the year before I had all kinds of problems. So, wow, that's really interesting. And I think it's a, it's a great example, I think, of even something that would be helpful outside of a situation like this with uh, the Amish community, but really any community. Sometimes it, it does come down to relationships and just trying to establish some level of like mutual respect. And sometimes that's more impactful than the law. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially in that, and it's all situational and getting a good read on it. I have another neighbor that was he kind of thought the property was his for years and we had to get through some surveying and stuff like that. And he was disrespecting my signs with quads and everything else. And I had to go to the law on him two or three times. The state police were called to his house. And ever since the survey and everything was done, I haven't had any issues with him either. But, um, you know, it's kind of a small, we live way back in the woods, probably a quarter mile back in the woods off of a dirt road is my house. So they had this camp on the backside of my property that I, I could only see it if I went up over the, the ridge and, uh, he, he would just say it's his property and come on it without any regards to what I wanted to do. So with that instance, you couldn't even have a, a good conversation with him. It was just, that's what you had to do. That was your only option. But I want to play devil's advocate for a second that. <laughs> You are giving up your time, you know, and I know you said you got some financial kickbacks, but whether you want to do it or not, yes, you're, you're, you're going in there and you're, and you're, I don't know, setting up ties with their community, which is what you had to do, but you shouldn't have to do that. In my opinion, it's your property. You should be able to do whatever you want on it, and if that means keep a certain group of people or anybody out of it for that matter, you should, that should be your right as an American taxpayer. Yeah, absolutely, and for whatever reason in this area, the state police just – the Amish in my eyes, and I could be wrong, but they just don't seem to want to mess with them, and, and that's even poaching. Uh, a lot of people in the neighborhood have called in the game commission to try to come out and catch them poaching. Um, but there are, the Amish community is, is strange. There are good people in it just like us. Uh, but then you got the bad ones just like us also. And, and they like, they're sneaky as you can be. I mean, it's not unlikely for me to go home, um, after podcasting or something late two or three in the morning. And they're out on their buggies just strolling around in the middle of the night. It's like they have nothing better to do. They don't have TV. They don't they don't do anything. So the kids go out and shoot deer for fun. Um, you know, it it sucks, but that's just the way it is. So unfortunately, yeah, Dan, I had to go out of my way to make sure that I, you know, could have the hunting that I have for myself, my kids or whatever. But didn't you, Mark, didn't you have something where you live, guys shooting from the road, or maybe I'm mistaken, uh, a while back? Uh, I didn't have anything specific. There's definitely been a lot of rumors of that kind of thing happening. Um, 
but I don't have, there wasn't like a specific deer I was after or something like that. And I haven't, I haven't caught anyone doing it on the farms that I hunt around here. Um, there is a large Amish community around here. So I, I never really thought about that, but I, that certainly could be, um, and I don't want to prejudge anyone around here at all. Oh yeah. But cause it's know. not just Amish. Yeah. It's, right? a, it's I mean, everyone. Anybody can do it. We got a guy next to where I, uh, where I hunt who's been busted. I'm not joking. Probably 10, 15 times for poaching illegal activities, uh, mm-hmm. as far as deer game or game violations, trespassing, whatnot. And they're not going to take you to jail for that kind of stuff. They're going to fine you and they're going to take away your license, but that only works so much. You know, if, if they continue to do it, okay, pay the fine. Okay. I'll pay the fine, pay the fine, pay the, fine. okay. You can't hunt anymore. Okay. Well, I guess I'll just pay the fine if you bust me again. Yeah. yeah and that's, that's the approach they take. Uh, they don't have to worry about driver's license. You know, they don't have to really worry about anything because they don't, they don't have that stuff. So it's just the fine, and they're they're pretty wealthy around our area. Um, but you know, and another thing they do is like any pond or lake in our area. Good luck trying to catch a fish in it because they'll go in the middle of the night and take all the fish out too. You know, so that, <laughs> oh, that's just I... the stuff they do. Um, yeah, yeah. You can talk about that forever. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had a really nice Amish family help me renovate my barn. So yeah. there's that. <laughs> it's not, and it's not necessarily like I said. It's not necessarily like Amish. Yeah, right. Yeah, it, it, and like I said, there's there's great ones too. I have relationships with other Amish that I I actually go to their house and treat them. Uh, a lot of my patients are Amish. I have good relationships with them, but there's there's a select few that that just ruin it or give it's just like anything else that give them a bad name or a bad yeah. rap but yeah, what would true. happen if you went onto their property i don't know i i honestly don't know i i did have one amish guy he was walking up on my property to rifle hunt and i was on my way to work and I just stopped along the side of the road and said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm going in here to hunt. I said, well, this is posted property. It's, it's my property and I don't allow anyone on it to hunt. And he said, well, what about second season? I said, no, no hunting whatsoever. And he said, well, we better not catch you on anybody else's property. If, you, if you're posting property, you're not allowed hunting on anybody else's property. And I said, well, I will be just hunting on my property. However, if I have permission to hunt on someone else's property, I'll be there. And they, they're, <laughs> you know, they're throwing a big uproar because they don't have any property to hunt anymore. So a lot of times they purchase property that's all field, not not woods or standing timber. So they don't have any property close by to hunt, and they get, you know, they get frustrated. Which I understand that, you know, but. If you want to kill a mature deer in Pennsylvania on a regular basis, you have to either post your property or have a good piece of property that is private to hunt. So, so let's talk about that. Um, how, how, how'd the whole process of you buying this piece of ground go? Cause it sounds like that's something that happened fairly recently. And then I'd love to hear about, you know, what that property was like when you purchased it. And then you, you, you mentioned that you've been making some changes to it. So I'd be curious to hear what you've done yeah. so far. Well, I purchased this property two years ago. Um, luckily, it was a, a family friend that owned 74 acres, and he was looking to subdivide. There was an old farmhouse, an old homestead on it that I was interested in. So he subdivided it to me, and I bought 30 acres. 
in the old homestead. And then next to me, there was a 50 acre piece that was, there was no, you know, homes on it or anything like that. He, the guy basically bought it for timber rights and it was vacant. So a lot of the Amish were hunting that property cause it wasn't posted. And I had access to my 30 acres and the other 47 or 43 acres, whatever it was, um, that the other guy owned that I bought off of. So I had the permission to post all of that property, um, for myself. When we first got there, the population was pretty low, uh, due to how much pressure it was, was on the property cause it was never posted and anyone could hunt it. So the population was low. Um, it's all standing hardwoods, not a lot of thick cover, but it, it has a lot of really good potential on a top looking at a topo. So, um, a lot of good pinch points and funnels and, and talking with people around the area, uh, a lot of deer were killed off that hillside there. Um, some of the property next to me has been managed for quite a few years. So there's, I knew there was potential and, and there was a lot of good deer around. So what I did initially, uh, I talked with my good friend, Mike Groman. Uh, Mike is from that area. And, and when I talked to him and told him I, I bought this property, I told him who I bought off of. And he goes, Kevin, I've hunted that property all my life. I know exactly where you need to have stands, everything you need to do. And, wow. and <laughs> this hunter, you know, Mike is a very good hunter, perfectionist. Um, and, and we have, a, we have a mutual friend, uh, Nick Pinizzato. He's the president of CEO. So Mike, Mike Groman and Nick Pinizzato grew up together. They're best friends. So Mike Groman is a level two deer stewardess. Um, so that, you know, it was just like, perfect for me, uh, knowing that what he knew and him being a level two deer stewardess and Nick and all the connections, I was like, all right, this is, this is great. You need to come out to the property, Mike, and show me what I need to know. So he came out and kind of set up like a five-year plan for me of where I need to start creating cover, putting in food plots and such. So, so far, all I've done is, is opened up some areas that were already there and, and put in some brassicas and clover and planted those and, and managed the property. So patrolled the area, um, not worried about my success, just trying to get the property under my control and keeping people off of it because the, you know, the deer were just not there. Um, so after doing that the first year, I started to gather information from my neighboring properties that were managing deer and trying to figure out what they had that I didn't have. Um, and the one thing that they had more than I had was cover. They had so much cover that there's no reason for deer to even be on my property. Uh, so that's where I started with the food plots and trying to plant stuff that they might not be planning, uh, to catch them in second season or rut on my property. Cause it's really not that far. It's quarter mile, not even to where this main area is at that they like to bed. So I, I got permission and, and they let me shed hunt that piece. And I went in there and picked up quite a few nice sheds off the neighboring property. So I knew they were staying there primarily, but during pre rut and rut, I would get pictures of them, you know, coming through my property. So my focus right now is creating a few cover areas 
and bedding areas where, uh, you know, two, I have two groups of doe on my property. Um, so I created those areas where these deer already like to bed and, and just made them thicker, trying to keep them, you know, in a, a good area. So when those bucks do want to, when those five year or three year olds or four year olds do want to come off of the neighboring properties, I know where my doe beds are and I know what those bucks are going to be potentially doing to, uh, to get with those does. So that's kind of my focus so far is in the first two years is little baby steps. Um, the one thing Mike told me when I first started this, he's like, it's a long process. You're not going to benefit it from it, but your son Finn will. And, and he's right. You know, I'm seeing slow improvements and the numbers are up. The deer numbers are up, but, um, I'm just enjoying the management side of things. And if I end up shooting a nice deer due to my efforts, so be it. But hopefully in the years to come, Finn will have a lot more success than I've had. What kind of, have you seen any changes in the, so it's not, you've been doing this two years. Um, yeah. So is there anything noticeably different now? Have you anything you can point to? The, other than the deer numbers being up because of patrolling my property, not too much. So the other issue that I ran into is on my 30 acres, we have our homestead and the, the homestead set vacant for two and a half years. So there was no activity. And then even prior to that, the lady that lived there was older and she didn't spend a lot of time outside and didn't have any animals in it or anything like that. So when we bought the house, you know, we have two young kids running around. We have a German short hair that loves to run around we have goats, we have chickens, you know, so there's a lot of activity. So initially, you know, I, I, I knew that it was going to take a, the deer a while to get accustomed to our presence there. Um, so if anything, you know, the numbers have been up and the deer are slowly adapting to us being at the house. I had a, a buck in the yard yesterday and it's the first time I've seen a buck that close to the house it actually my son had a soccer ball out in the yard and he came up and was sniffing the soccer ball you know um <laughs> he's probably only a year and a half year old or something like that he wasn't real big just had some stubs grown right now so i couldn't tell you know other than body size what he was but that kind of thing wasn't happening the first two years so you know the food plots are close to the house the sanctuary areas are rather close due to the size of the property so those, those little changes I've seen, but nothing drastic, um, so far. It sounds pretty cool though. Having a spot like that, your own place right behind the house and you can kind of start molding it. That's, that's the dream. I mean, that's what I always dream about when I think about trying to buy some land of my own, just the ability to make, be able to make those changes that you want, where you want them, the ability to, you know, to have a blank canvas that you can paint on. Um, yeah. That's that's really cool. What's the food look like? I mean, are you going to plan on putting any food plots in? Yeah, I've put in uh, three food plots now. Um, brassicas and turnips the past couple years, and it, it's almost like the deer are still trying to develop a palate for that if, if they even do that because they haven't really messed with it too much. And then some white clover and, you know, and, and red clover, which they, they really enjoy right now. So those do well through the summer months, but, uh, you know, I was really, 
hoping for good things this year, but the acorns were so prominent this year that they just didn't have the need to travel for food. They were everywhere. Um, but like, you know, back to what you said, Mark, that that's what I enjoy the most out of it. And it's the little things. So if you're, you want to start doing this or buy a small parcel, it's hard to not get frustrated with all the things like the Amish or the intruders and, and not seeing quick changes, but it's the little things. Uh, for instance, my son and I were down kind of digging a little water hole below the food plot last year. And, uh, my, my short hair was down with us and she came flying through the woods with a, a shed and it was just a little spike shed, but we were so excited to find a shed that close to the house. Um, after all of our hard work, you know, and little things like that. And, and this year, uh, I shot a, a buck on the first day of rifle season with my recurve and I thought he was older than what he was and he was still in rut when he was pushing a doe down past my stand and it was a quick decision and I shouldn't have shot him, but I did. And, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that I got him on my property that close to the house. Uh, it's just, it adds so much to the hunt when you, when you do all the, the other things throughout the year, um, you know, 365. So, Oh yeah. Was that the first deer you've killed on the property? On my property, that was the second deer because I did take a doe early season uh, with my bow also. Very cool. Now, yeah. I saw – I didn't actually get to listen to the podcast of yours a little bit. I got to listen to a little bit. But there was an episode you had a, a while back about the Niner buck. Yeah. That's that's a buck you shot in 2015. Is that correct? 2015, yes. That was the – that was the year that I shot, shot that buck. That was a cool looking buck. Could you tell us that story? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the Niner buck was a buck that my father was getting on trail camera uh, through the through the pre rut. And when where my dad lives, it, it's almost in the city limits, but it's outside the city limits. So that's where I grew up hunting. And uh, We've, we've shot a, uh, quite a few nice bucks out of this particular little piece. And he was getting trail cam pictures of this deer. And, and my dad nicknamed him Niner. And he hunted them pretty much all year. And I wanted to stay on my property and hunt just because I had it. And I was putting so much time into it. So I didn't really want to leave. And, and dad kept saying, why, why don't you come hunt this buck? Why don't you come hunt this buck? And it, it's close to my work. And I could hit it up in the mornings if I wanted to. And I said, no, you get it. You get it. And dad didn't want to move his stand and he was in the same spot. And I said, you need to be, you know, 200 yards east of where you're at. And you need to be in this stand that I've killed some other deer out of. I'm good where I'm at. And he did, we just kept playing that game back and forth. And, and finally the, the one morning it was, there was a nice cold front coming through and, I messaged Mark, my buddy, and I said, hey, you want to come film me in the morning? I said, you can shoot any buck you want. And Mark, Mark's uh, the type of hunter that if it's legal, he's going to kill it. Um, and in Pennsylvania, we have point restrictions. So in this particular unit, it has to have uh, three on one side, so two up and a brow. And so I, I told him, I said, you come film me, but if this one buck comes through, I want to shoot this buck. 
He said, okay. And I was running film because I didn't expect to see him. And we saw six or seven bucks that morning, and they all just kept winding us and working around us. So I, I thought, oh, we're not going to see them. But if a mature deer works through that area, I knew it would be from around 9 o'clock to 10 o'clock. For whatever reason, that's that's when they come through. And and sure enough, I heard Mark whisper to me, big buck, big buck. And I turned around, and this buck was kind of unique. He had a really long brow, brow tine on the one side. So I turned around the tree and saw him. I said, that's him. Well, this deer stopped at like 15 yards in front of Mark. He's like, I could shoot him right here. And I was like, don't, don't. (laughs) (laughs) He said, I won't. So we kind of had to switch roles real quick. And uh, I ended up getting that deer, you know, and my dad was in the stand probably two or 300 yards from me. So it was a, it was a cool experience to, to get that deer and my dad be there and Mark to be there. And, um, you know, that, that particular area for us always seems to do well. Dad shot a nice buck, a three and a half year old out of that same spot last year. And then I killed one in 2000 and I think it was 2010. That was a a Pope and young deer too. So we've, we've shot a lot of good deer out of that same bottom year in and year out. And, and when we, I just, I've hunted it all my life and kind of got it down to a science where I know when the mature deer are going to be in that area and what time just based off of, um, the activity that goes around, get, like happens around that area. Uh, it just seems like you're in and you're out within a, within a five to six day span. If you're in a tree all day, you're going to have an opportunity at a nice deer. So what, what makes that spot so good? Why do you think that is a place you can depend on like that? I'm, I'm curious, you know, if there's some kind of topographic feature or terrain or cover, what makes it tick? It's a, it's a long bottom and it, it has pinches on both sides. Um, so one, just the way that the, the land lays out there, it's a crick bottom with pinches on both sides and the pressure around it is significant. Uh, the, the one thing that I think stands out the most is these deer like to go down in this bottom and bed during the day and it's primarily doe groups. So again, I'm hunting doe groups that I know in this time frame that one of them's going to be hot and when she is these bucks will be cruising this creek bottom looking for her and uh just the way it, it pinches out they have to come by us. So you know, that, if that answers your question, Mark. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Got to love a spot like that during the rut. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, like I said, these are small parcels, so the deer have to move if they want to find doe and, and they have to move through those points. You know, that's, that's just how that, there's just not enough woods. So we know they're there and we know where they spend most of their time throughout the year and it's not there. So we literally don't run any cameras. We don't have to hang any stands, but we know that if, if we're not on anything else, if we go in there in those six days, primarily, you know, the last six days of October, we'll have a good chance of killing one. So when you mentioned, you know, all these small parcels are the terrain features on all these small parcels different or is there 
a consistency across the parcels as well. Let, you know, for example, let's say there's four in a row, right? One guy is not a farmer, so he just lets it grow out, and there, you know, or he has like an apple orchard or, or something like that. And then all the way from bare ground that there might be some ag on. Is it all different or does it for the most part all run together? Yeah, it's all different. It, it's rolling hills here. Um, not every little small pe- piece of parcel is good. It's finding that one like we have done where the terrain just adds up. And I have found that it it's not so much the food. It's not so much the cover. It's hunting those doe groups um, during that peak period, you know, because these deer, because they are so pressured, a lot of times they're nocturnal. Uh, so if, if they are coming to food, they're coming late and you just don't have a crack at them, you know, other than those few days, for instance, this year when my dad killed his buck, it was a perfect win, perfect morning, good cold front. I unfortunately had to be to work early. So I, I slept in and that morning, my dad, while I was in the shower, sent me a, a picture of the deer he killed and I looked at it. And then the next thing I knew, four or five other pitchers came in. So all my trad buddies here in Pennsylvania, there was like five bucks go down that same morning. Wow. You know, <laughs> just, and it, that's how it is. It, it's very hit or miss. Yeah, deer get killed all the time. But when it's a good morning, it's just boom, 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 boom. Because, you know, we, ha- we know how to hunt these small parcels. And if you can find those pinch points, um, I just, I feel like that's probably where it's at on the, the smaller pieces. Dan, um, uh, before we, before we, uh, shift towards, uh, archery, um, I know you wanted to, to ask Kevin a little something about some of his Western adventures. Yeah, man. Um, I saw that you went on a, a, a mule deer hunt and I believe, was it with your father or father-in-law? Yeah. Father. Yeah, my, my father. Talk yep. to us a little bit about that trip, how you planned it, what your what your goals were, and and uh, tell us that story. Yeah, so uh, it was probably four years ago. My good friend asked me to that we, they were going to South Dakota to do it yourself type of hunt for mule deer, over the counter tags, no points, preference points or anything like that, and it's a it's a cheap hunt, so. If you get a good group of guys together, you can go out there relatively cheap and and hunt mule deer, which to me sounded awesome. Um, I always wanted to go, you know, on a spot and stock type of hunt. So we went out the first year. There was eight guys. None of us had any success, but we had a blast. We saw a lot of deer. Um, I think half the guys had traditional bows and half the guys had compounds. So after that, I was kind of hooked and... I, I believe I skipped one year and then in 2000 and well, it was 2015, I went back out with my buddy Mark again. He harvested a, a doe out there, doe mule deer, and I missed a really good mule deer, probably 180 inch mule deer Ooh. with my, with my stick bow. I just, just shot right under him and it was a poke. It was a far shot, but I got that whole spot stock type of thing. I watched him bed down, waited to the the sun was high and, and worked in on them. 
and he kind of the wind shifted and he caught my wind and he was at 30 yards and he kind of bounced out to like 45 or 50 and I took a shot my only shot and just shot underneath him so that kind of got me addicted again I was like I got to go back out there um so then last year dad and I and another friend decided to drive back out to South Dakota well we actually flew last year and um went to a new region so this is my third third time in the the same area which is the black hills of south dakota um and and this year finally i made it happen and shot a little forky mule deer and was just as happy with him as i would have been with that 180 inch mule deer uh it's tough hunting it's not easy and even some of the the big mule deer hunters that kill a nice mule deer every year south cox and and those guys have hunted South Dakota for mule deer, do-it-yourself type of hunting, and and said it's probably one of the harder states to to get it done. So, yeah, this year was the first year out, out of three that I was actually successful with getting one. Awesome. Something that you're going to continue to do then every year? Yeah. Uh, this year I'm skipping the mule deer. I'm actually going out to Utah. Uh, my good friend out there, Matt Davis with mountain ops invited me out and we're going to do an over the counter elk hunt. So awesome. I'm going out the end of August. So it's a really early season hunt. Um, and we're going to primarily hunt, uh, spike only units cause they're, they're flourished and, and cows. So I'm not even trying to kill a big bull. I just want to kill an elk. So awesome. get, get that elk meat, man. It is amazing. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's the goal. I'm I'm missing my elk in the freezer. That's for sure. <laughs> so that's that's awesome. And, uh, I can totally see why that seems appealing. That kind of hunt. It seems like an absolutely beautiful area. Every time I've driven through South Dakota and the Black Hills, I'm always just like, why don't I hunt here? I need to hunt here. Yeah, um, and it's crazy. The Black Hills. You know, we hunt primarily the burn areas. Uh, so, you know, big fires went through there and there, there's just timber laying down everywhere. So stocking in on, on these mule deer is extremely difficult. I imagine. But, but that's where, that's where they're at. So anybody looking to go to South Dakota and hunt Black Hills, go to the burns. <laughs> just wait till <laughs> next time you show up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hey, are you, are you Kevin? Hey man, I, I, heard, I heard you on the Wired to Hunt podcast. Well, yep. <laughs> I've kind of found, I've, I've found a, a few other tricks, so I'm not really hunting the burns anymore, but oh, so okay. this is a, this is a You're diversion. <laughs> this is a diversionary tactic. I understand. <laughs> it's not, it's not far from the burns, but yeah, uh, that's, that's the general area, the burn areas. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. So, so let, let's switch gears here, but First, let's take a quick pause for our weekly dose of whitetail wisdom from our friends at Whitetail Properties. And here is producer Spencer Newharth. This week with Whitetail Properties, we are joined by Gabe Adair, a land specialist out of southern Iowa. And Gabe is going to be telling us about what the primary factors are that make for quality hunting ground. You know, there's a, a couple that stick out, I guess, the most. Um, one would be neighborhood. I think you got to have you've got to have the structure around you. Um, I've even seen, you know, in my line of work, I've seen enormous farms struggle, you know, and I say enormous, I'm talking thousand, fifteen hundred, two thousand 2000 acre farms 
struggle if you don't have structure around you, like-minded neighbors, you know, on the same program, or at least close to the same program. Everybody's going to have their differences, of course, but, you know, um, I think you got to have, you know, the right people around you to really get near to that upper age class. And so I think that's first and foremost. And then that kind of leads into the second one where, you know, depending on what you're after, um, you've got to be in the right area as far as genetics. You got to be where big deer are at, you know, if, if, if you're in an area where you're, you know, your, your goal is to shoot 150 inch five-year-old buck, obviously there's a lot more places that a guy can get into something like that. But, you know, definitely the second one would be if you're after top, top end, if, you know, if everybody's wanting to shoot Boone and Crockett type animals or even that, that new pinnacle that I deal with more and more every day is 200. You know, I, I, I hear about it, deal with it and see it way more. Um, you know, you've got to be where those animals even have a chance to be. And so, you know, the two things I would say is obviously neighborhood structure around your property and then your property has got to be in an area where it's going to, where it's going to produce or have at least have a chance to produce what you're wanting to harvest. If you'd like to learn more and to see the properties that Gabe currently has listed for sale, visit whitetailproperties.com backslash Adair. That's A-D-A-I-R. So let's switch gears here Um, because you, Kevin, run the Trad Geeks podcast and website. Um, So I want to talk a little bit about that because actually we have never talked about traditional archery on the Wired Hunt podcast, I think ever. Um, Wow. Yeah, which is surprising given a lot of people are interested in it. And and I personally, you know, I enjoy shooting my compound, but I know a lot of people, you know, have been trying out trad. And Mm -hmm. um, I want to pick your brain about it a little bit. So I guess first, tell us about real quick Trad Geeks. What are you guys doing there? Well, Trad Geeks, I started six years ago. Um, I was, there was some traditional archery forums that were out there that were basically geared to the sponsors. So if you had anything negative to say about a sponsor, you got booted off the forums and (laughs) that just pissed me off right away. And, uh, I thought, well, if you can't get on here and and state how you feel about a company in a nice way or in a positive, you know, the, as good as you could say a negative thing, I guess, um, without getting blocked or booted, that's not any type of forum that I want to belong to. So within two days, I started my own traditional archery forum and it did, it did okay. And we had a, it was a nice place for my friends and I to get on there and talk about traditional archery. But my mind never stops thinking. So I started creating more and created a blog on top of that. And the blog led into videos and film and, and then that led into a podcast. So now, you know, Trad Geeks is an educational site where you can come on there and, and learn how to get into traditional archery. Um, and also, you know, pick our brains, but, you know, now it's kind of more switched into a content producing website. So we produce a lot of content for other companies through my website. Um, and now we're, we're focused more on producing content and the apparel side of things. So now we sell traditional archery shirts and hats and stuff like that. So more of a brand now. Um, but that's just kind of evolved over time. So if you want to learn about traditional archery, the podcast is where you're going to get the education. Awesome. 
you guys have definitely done a good job with it. I've always been impressed with what you guys have put out. And um, I think to your point, like you said, it, it's a brand. You're building a brand there, and that's that's important. So, yeah. so why why traditional? Why did you end up picking up a traditional bow and, and kind of adding that to what you do? Well, for me, I, I had a couple friends, one specifically, um, that was into traditional archery. And, and in 2010, when I shot that Pope and Young deer with my compound down in that spot where I was talking about earlier, I shot him and it was the biggest buck I've ever killed to date. And I was super excited. I had trail cam pictures of him. I, I, I was hoping to get that deer and I shot him. And I watched him fall. He, he went 30, 40 yards and just piled up. And I called my dad. And as always, I called dad first. And then I, I said, I just shot that big eight point. And he goes, why aren't you excited? And I said, I am. He said, you don't sound it. And I thought, no, I'm not, I'm not as excited as I should be. And I get pretty worked up after I shoot a deer. But for whatever reason, that that situation, I I just didn't get that worked up over. And, and when I got up to him, I was excited and all that. But I talked to my buddy about it. And I said, I don't know. I, I hope I'm not losing like my, my will to hunt and my excitement and all that. He goes, you just need to get a trad bow. And I, I don't know about that. He said, no, seriously. So he brought one over and I started shooting it. And immediately I just, I fell in love with shooting it. Um, it was hard. It was difficult. It was a challenge. And you, you had to practice every day, which is what I wanted to do. I like shooting and I wanted to shoot every day, but with a compound, it just, I could pick it up a week before season and it'd be hitting right where I wanted it to just like the year before. So that primarily got me interested in traditional archery. A lot of people, you know, you get that misconception and, and I might get a lot of hate mail for this, but guys say oh i hunt with a trad bow because it's it's more difficult and maybe maybe out west it is hunting mule deer long range shots but for me if you practice with one out of a tree stand um i'm just as effective if not more with my trad bows here in pennsylvania than a compound so you know i just want to throw that out there it's it's not as as difficult as people may think if you practice but yeah, I just, that shooting more and all that got me interested in it. And it is cool to, when you, when you shoot a deer, have that and, you know, we could get into all the different type of shooting styles, but it just feels like you're more one with the animal when you do shoot it, not having any sights and, and complete control of everything. You're not going through all that stuff. So it's just cooler to carry a trad bow in the woods, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> From your point of view, do you see more people starting to do this? Like pick up trad yeah. gear instead of, you know, starting with trad instead of starting with compound? Yeah, see, when I made the switch, and I can't remember what year it was. It was five or six years ago. When I made the switch and started the website, uh, the brand and, and uh, you know, kind of the slogan was modern meets traditional. And, and my thought was, man, if I made this switch to traditional archery at a younger age, I see a lot of people going back to it and, and everything goes in cycles in this world. And I just saw that, that potential. And that's kind of what another thing that perked my interest in starting the website is 
seeing this, you know, convert hunter switching from a compound to a trad and, and this past year and this year it's happening right now. I mean, there's a lot of people out there trying to produce traditional archery content now within the last year, a lot of traditional archery podcasts are popping up now. Uh, a lot of the celebrity hunters, if you want to call them celebrity hunters are now switching to traditional archery. And I think people one are they're seeing the appeal to it, the, the satisfaction in it. But also I, I feel that a lot of people are switching to traditional archery for the wrong reasons. They're not switching to it just because they want to, they're switching to it because they see the, the potential with the, the media side of things and doing something different. So but yeah, Dan, I, I see a lot of people doing it now. Interesting. I hadn't thought about uh, that last aspect you talked about, the the media in some ways driving it um, because there's like opportunity there from business Yeah, standpoint. there's not, exactly. And I, I see a lot of people switching to it because I, I believe that they want to have that, you know, it's, you see a lot of people and individuals converting so now people are more people are wanting to see people harvest animals with a traditional bow and it, there's more excitement and because not that it's harder than with a compound because I don't agree with that but it's just something new it's something different even though it's been around for decades you know yeah so for someone who wants to pick up a traditional bow whether that be making a, a full switch like you did, um, or, you know, just dabbling in it and trying it out in addition to what they're mm -hmm. already doing with their compound. What kind of things have you learned as far as, um, you know, taking those first steps? What, what mistakes did you make that others can maybe avoid? The first thing is a lot of people that switch, they say, Oh, I drawed a 70 pound compound or a 60 pound compound. I need, I could, I could shoot a 50 pound recurve, no problem or long bow. Um, and to start that is just, it's way too much. So there's no let off. You're holding that 55 or 50 pounds. So that's number one. If you're going to get into it, get a light poundage bow, 35 pounds and get your form down and, and dialed in. And once you get your form down, um, it's really not that difficult. It, it, I feel that if you're already, you know, shooting a compound and, and do things right and know how to use your back tension and, and all the basic form things that converting to a traditional bow is not that hard if you're not over bowed. Uh, and then, you know, getting the right guidance for arrow selection and tuning your stick bow. So a, a lot of people don't think that there's, a lot of tuning that goes involved with a, a traditional bow. It's just a, a bow with no sights and you just grab arrows and start shooting it. And that's far from the truth. There's more tuning with it probably than a compound. So, you know, you don't want to get too involved in that. You want to keep it simple initially and just get a bow and start shooting at close ranges, 10 or 15 yards and getting comfortable with it. Um, but within a couple of weeks you can start, you know, diving into it more and, and after that first year, start going up in weight when you feel comfortable. But it all depends what you're hunting, too. I I feel confident taking a 35-pound bow and, and shooting any whitetail with it and not having any problems. So, hmm. 
You, you mentioned, you know, one of the important things is getting your arrow set up properly, different things like that. Is there anything you can share from a gear standpoint, you know, just high level stuff as far as things that someone would need to think about when they're going about and getting set up? Yeah. So with a traditional bow, everybody draws a certain length, just like a compound. Generally speaking, if you have like a 30 inch draw with a compound, you're going to be roughly two inches shorter than that with a trad bow. And that's a general statement. So at 28 inches, that's where your poundage would be, you know, to put you in the ballpark on the carbon side of things. Carbon arrows is what I shoot. You know, if you're shooting 50 pounds at 28 inches, you're going to roughly want 10 grains per inch or 10 grains per pound of bow. So if it's a 50 pound bow, you're going to want to be shooting 10 grains per pound, roughly a 500 spine or a 400 spine arrow is where you're going to want to be with that. And then, you know, depending on, you know, with a 500 spine arrow, you're going to probably want around 250 or 300 grains up front. And I know that might seem high to a lot, but with traditional archery, you really want to have a high FOC, which is front of center weight. So most of your weight in that arrow, you want up front. So roughly 20% or more uh, with your setup. And, you know, what we focus on with traditional archery, and it should be across the board, but the compound industry, I feel, really chases speed. So a compound bow, to be able to come out with new bows and new bows, the only thing they can really do is either get faster so or get faster, basically. So they're chasing that kinetic energy. And a lot of people get that kinetic energy and momentum mixed up. So with kinetic energy, you have, you know, you're getting that from speed 300 feet per second. Well, with a traditional bow, you're only shooting roughly, you know, a fast traditional bow would be 200 feet per second. And I have a couple, but most of them are around 160 to 170 feet per second. So with all that high FOC and all that weight up front, that momentum of the heavy head carries your arrow through the animal. So just think of a setup of a compound bow drawing 60 or 70 pounds, shooting 300 feet per second, but also having a high FOC arrow. Um, and this is all Dr. Ashby's theory and, and studies. So if a guy would shoot that type of setup, you know, they could shoot through a car. They really could. Well, it, it makes sense. And it's one of those things I feel like to your point, whether you're talking about trad or a compound bow, there's, there is so much talked about when it comes to speed, but there are a lot more important things I think in the long run when it comes to actually being able to kill an animal, you know, being able to get yeah. that penetration, being able to, you know, actually aim well. Absolutely. And it, the last podcast we did with my good friend, Matt Davis, who I'm going hunting with, he, he just got back from Africa and, and killed quite a few animals in Africa with a 50 pound recurve and an extreme FOC arrow. So when he got there, these guys thought, oh man, you're not going to be able to, to get it done with this. And he, he did not have any problems killing anything with pass throughs and everything else, wildebeest and, and all that. So you know, with a 35 pound recurve and a good FOC arrow, as far as whitetail go, you'll pass through any of those animals. And I kind of converted my friend, Mike Groman that I talked about earlier into traditional archery. And his first bow is a 35 pound bow. And 
he harvested quite a few dough with that. And he was just amazed at how that era slipped through the deer like butter. And, uh, the, the other thing that I, you know, and this is kind of getting off topic, Mark, but what I like about it is you think about a compound and kinetic energy and speed, but not a lot of weight up front of an arrow. It's almost like you're slapping that deer. So you shoot it and that deer just gets whipped. That deer is going to run as fast as it can for as far as it can. So that deer might make it 200 yards. It might make it further. Well, with a trad bow and that high FOC, the arrow is going relatively slow and that momentum pulls that with a sharp single bevel, you know, two blade broadhead, it pulls that arrow through that animal like, like you're getting shot with a needle. And from what I found in my finding is all my deer within the last six years have only went 50 yards tops and I've watched them all fall in sight. So there's something to that the the trad world and the compound world with the right setup that arrow going through these animals and them not even knowing their hit so i think with a really sharp broadhead and the right setup you don't even really need a good blood trail anymore unless you make a really poor shot because the animals fall right in front of you so it, it's pretty cool to see that too yeah i really need to one of these days the this is one area that I don't spend enough time on, um, <laughs> even with just with my own setup with my compound, is really fine-tuning my arrow setup and making sure I've got the right, every single different little thing you just mentioned there, that's one area where I always talk about details and being detail-focused and doing all the little things, and I do a really good job of that with my hunting figuring out mm -hmm. where to go, when to hunt, how to hunt, all those things. And I admittedly have not spent as much time dialing, you know, the details of my archery equipment. You know, I, I practice a lot. I can shoot, but mm -hmm. I probably could shoot even better if I applied that same level of detail to the smaller elements of my gear. Um, and I need to do that. So um, to your point, yeah. all these things, they matter. Yeah, we, and we could, I could just keep diving into arrows and, and now the nano shafts and the micro diameter shafts and with that high FOC, the, the wind doesn't affect your arrow as much and you have tighter groups. But, you know, that's the, that's the most important part to me because you can do all the things you're doing, Mark, and all the right things and be in the right setup and shoot well. But if your arrow doesn't perform, you're, none of that stuff even matters, you know, so... You know, that's definitely an area you need to clean up on. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> no, tell you what, this, this year, more than ever, I did a lot of research on that, right? I did mm -hmm. a lot of research on um, FOC, um, what broadhead I was going to use, what arrow, arrows I was going to use, um, all the way down to my fletchings. I, you know, I talked with guys who were, were way more experienced than me, and that's where I got my information. Uh, and I, I, this year I'm, my bow is not as fast as it, as, uh, the bow that I shot the previous year and my arrows are probably a little heavier. So I am actually starting to see a little more arch in my mm -hmm. arrow flight this year. And I, you know, this is a compound still over the last, but I'm shooting a, a heavy arrow that, you know, if there's contact, I'm not going to have to worry about whether or not it's get I'm getting penetration because mm -hmm. I've put so much energy or uh, uh, thought into that arrow setup. Yeah, absolutely. 
And I forgot to mention that's probably one of the coolest things about Trad too is just watching that arc, the arrow arc, you right. know. So, <laughs> right, it's a pretty cool thing. But that is cool, even with a compound. I just love when you shoot a, a long range shot, sixty, seventy oh, yards, yeah. and you just watch it rise and then it drops right somehow magically right to where you're putting. <laughs> that is cool. That's it's a beautiful cool. thing, that's for sure. Yeah, except for when it doesn't go where you want it to go. <laughs> then you shoot it's... your play equipment. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and we're going up to uh, this weekend, we're going up to Seven Springs to the Total Archery Challenge. And, you know, there's a lot of long shots and shooting the trad biz at those targets. I'm sure we'll lose a lot of arrows, but it's always fun. So, oh, yeah. So, so real quick, what about from a hunting standpoint? If you're hunting, and, and I, I imagine that a lot of the things that you learn when using a traditional bow when bow hunting could be applied right back to if you're using a compound bow because I think it just forces you to pay more attention to detail is my assumption. But I'm curious, um, you tell me the truth, when hunting with trad gear, how does that impact your hunting? How does that impact your picking stand sites or doing anything like that? Is there anything noticeably different or are you, are you hunting yeah. just like you did before? Yeah, there's... There's a lot of similarities for sure, but there's a lot of differences. Um, the The main one is, for me, and the biggest adjustment that I had is the bows are longer. So, you know, for as far as a short trad bow goes, you're probably at 58 inches. I do have some shorter than that. I have one that's 56 inches, but that's about as short as they go. And that's short. So, you know, I have them up to 60, 62 inch bows as well. So when you're in a stand, um, you know, I, I hunt out a lone wolf and muddy tree stands and, and they're open in the front, which makes it easier, but you have to worry about your limbs is more hitting branches when you draw. So you, you really have to plan your shots out to make sure that you're going to clear your limbs when you do draw it back more so than I did with a compound. And then, you know, height is another thing. So it, the higher you're getting in the tree with a trad bow, the steeper the angle, the more, you know, room for air you're going to have. So most traditional hunters try to hunt a little lower, uh, out of the stand. Most of my stands are probably 15 to 16 feet at, at best. So you got to make sure you have a good backdrop, good cover. Uh, but you can get away with it. A lot of traditional bow hunters hunt off the ground and, and stuff like that. My dad killed his buck this year and he he doesn't like to get high. He might have been twelve feet, but it was it was the perfect tree. Uh, it kind of went up and split multiple ways, so he had a lot of cover in there, and the deer never even knew he was there. But that you know, those are some of the little things you have to pay attention to with a traditional bow. Where with when I hunted with a compound, I just climbed as high as I felt like I needed to get, and and didn't really worry about backdrops and stuff like that as much, but. What about range? I mean, what kind of, what kind of range are you typically setting up for? And do most trad hunter, I mean, I've got a friend who, um, was shooting with a traditional bow for a while. And and he said, you know, if I got a buck within 20 yards, I'm going to shoot him. But anything past that, I don't think I could do it or didn't want to risk that. Is that like, is that the normal? Yeah. You know, that's, that's a funny thing. And in the traditional archery world, you know, in any of the archery world, I guess there's a lot of debate, but, um, I'm going to catch a lot of hate mail for this too, but I like to shoot far with my trad bow and 
do I want to shoot an animal at two yards? Yeah. I mean, that's what bow hunting is. You want to get as close as you possibly can to that animal for that encounter. However, if my, you know, I work full time and I have a family and everything else, so it's tough to get out. So if that opportunity presents itself and I feel confident at taking a shot, I'm going to take it. So I practice with my trad bow for long range. And when I went out West and South Dakota, I felt confident at 50 yards with my, with my bow. Wow. Uh, you know, so there's a whole, whole nother side to shooting styles and instinctive shooting versus gap shooting. And there's different aiming methods that some archers use with traditional bows. So with, with that, if you have the right setup and this specific bow is a zipper Z4 bow and the limbs are Z4 is are considered super curved. So, they, they shoot very fast, so the arrow's shooting flatter. So I could really reach out with that bow. But primarily, you know, in, in Pennsylvania, even with a compound, your furthest shot's a 30-yard shot. Uh, I have taken my mule deer, I took at like 30, 35. I've taken quite a few doe at 35 yards. Most of my bucks were 25 and under, you know, so... Obviously, you want to get as close as you can, but you can reach out there with them and you can be sufficient at those ranges if you practice and and you're tuned well and you have the right setup. That makes sense. Here's the natural follow-up question, though. And people ask the same thing of people when you shoot a compound bow compared to a rifle or something. When you go to traditional gear from a compound, is there is there has been quantified in any way or researched or looked into, is there an increase in wounding rate when you switch to a traditional bow? Because it, from the outside looking in, seems more difficult, seems more likely that that type of thing would happen. Is that true? Is that false? What, what are your thoughts? Well, I don't know of any statistical research data that would say that there's more wounded animal with a traditional bow. I personally feel that there's less. And here's why. If you're getting into traditional archery, you've probably been in the archery world quite some time and you pay attention to the details, the majority of them, not all of them, but you pay attention to FOC. You practice every day because it's, it's just not handed to you. What I've seen here in Pennsylvania, they've allowed crossbows now and any any Joe Blow can go to Walmart and buy a compound and buy arrows and throw on broadheads with a crossbow or compound and go out and shoot animals. And I see more deer being wounded with those setups and the guys that are just not educated in it than I do with traditional archery. I have a small group of friends here that hunt with traditional bows, probably eight or nine of us here in, in Punxi or Punxsutawney. And I can count on one hand over the last seven years, how many deer has been wounded and, and we found them later, you know, they didn't go that far. So I don't think that, that, you know, that there is that many deer wounded with traditional bows only, only because of that Mark is these guys are putting in their time with this equipment. And again, I feel even at an early stage in my long six years of traditional bow hunting uh that i felt confident at 20 and under just as confident with a traditional bow as i did a compound 
it's just it's it's not as difficult as people make it seem to be. I think your point's well taken about regardless of equipment, it comes down to your willingness to put in the time and preparation and practice to make sure that whatever you're using, you can use mm -hmm. ethically and, you know, inflict a mortal quick wound. Um, and that, yep. that's a responsibility on all of us, regardless of what we're using. And so I think it, it's interesting that, and, it, and it, from a, from a common sense standpoint, I think bow hunters in general, when you're using some kind of vertical bow, you know, and it becomes maybe more difficult as you switch between these different things, it usually pulls in people that are more dedicated to using it, which usually would then lead to, you know, a greater attention to detail, detail leading to mm -hmm. higher rates of success. So that, that makes sense. Um, and it's, I mean, it's an interesting thing to think about. Yeah. And these, like, I keep going back to the era setups. Uh, my dad practices all the time, but he's not that good of an archer. And he's the first to admit that. And he's killed quite a few deer with a trad bow and he never hunted with a compound. He got into archery four years ago, four or five years ago. And he shot his fair share of deer now. And I can say this honestly, not one of those shots was perfect not one of them was a great shot but we did the right thing we gave them enough time and with that arrow set up the way that those two blade single bevels we shoot the grizzly broadheads cut and they just do a lot of damage and these deer don't know what happened so they do not go far before they bed down so if you just give them the right amount of time they're there and you can you can recover everything that you that you shot at so that's another you know aspect of it but yeah it's just making the right decisions and, and trying to educate yourself and put in the time like you said yeah. now as somebody who's gone from compound to trad where would you suggest somebody starts let's say whether that is a bringing a child in or a kid, younger person, or someone who's older who's just getting into bow hunting for the first time, should is there a preference on where you think they should start? You know, I don't, I don't think Dan, um, like my dad, he started with a traditional bow, and I had years of experience with a compound. I didn't have much difficulty making that transition. However, I think that transition is easier if you've hunted with a compound and you've spent time archery hunting. I think that transition comes a lot faster. Right. The, big, the biggest thing is, is these guys that come from a compound to traditional archery, they think they have to change all these, all these things with their shot, and it's the same. You, you draw back an anchor just like you would with a compound. You hit your anchor point. You have multiple anchor points with traditional archery. It's not a, you don't have to snap shoot the, these traditional archers that just draw back and let it go has either shot like that all their life and have become really, really sufficient at it and are good at it, or they don't know what they're doing is, is what I've found. And, and there are some guys that can snap shoot like crazy, but the majority of good archers draw back and hit their anchor. You watch all the Olympic traditional archer guys. They're not snap shooting. They're drawing back, hitting an anchor, going through a psycho trigger and, and a controlled shot process that Jewel Turner, you know, talks about traditional archery and compound. Uh, we've had Jewel on our podcast and I would highly recommend looking into some of his stuff for guys that have target panic with compounds or, 
or everybody suffers with a, a little bit of target panic. Um, Jewel has kind of really set the blueprint for how, how you can get yourself out of it. And it's all, it's all physiological stuff. It's all science. It's how our brain works. So if you, if you follow that type of sequence in your shot, it is not hard to switch from a compound to a traditional archery or be successful with a compound. So I don't think there's anywhere. I think anyone can start with a traditional bow, but the the transition is much easier if you started with a compound first. Can you elaborate on that last piece? So regardless of if someone listening right now shoots a traditional bow or a compound bow, right? As you just mentioned, we've probably all to some degree experienced some kind of target panic. Um, Mm -hmm. Could you elaborate on that process that you mentioned? Uh, I can't remember the guy's name you said, but what's this, uh, this way of of dealing with target panic you're talking about? So his name's Joel Turner and he, he runs ironmindhunting.com or Ironmind Academy. So what, what happens with target panic and Joel might send me all kind of hate mail if I don't elaborate. You're going to get a lot of hate mail on this podcast, man. If I don't elaborate, you know, if I don't elaborate on this correctly, but to my knowledge, this is what happens. So if you're shooting with a compound, you, you could have a trigger release or a thumb release or a back tension release. When you have a back tension release, you don't know when that shot is going to go off. So as you're pulling through the shot and you should be saying, keep pulling, keep pulling, that shot's going to break unexpectedly. When a shot breaks unexpectedly, you don't brace for impact. You don't, you don't brace for recoil. Uh, if, if you're aware of when that shot's going to go off, so you're lining up your kisser button, you're looking through the peep sight, you're lining a pin up where you want it. You're going to say, okay, I'm going to pull the trigger. You punch the trigger. You're going to know that shot's going to break and you're going to naturally brace for that, that shot, which causes torquing and, and all kinds of stuff. What, and specifically target panic. So as soon as you get a, when you know that shot's going to go off, you're going to, a brace and that's what causes target panic or you're going to lock off target because you don't want to your body's natural mechanism for blocking that shot is going to protect itself and you're not going to want to lock on target so with Joel Turner's shot process theory and and it's just it, it all makes sense it's all science that but he just kind of set the blueprint for it so what we try to do is you create a psycho trigger and what a psycho trigger does is it allows you to not brace for that, that shot. So you have to have a psycho trigger in the traditional archery world can be a clicker on your bow. So it's a, a mechanism that goes on the limb and there's a string going to your string. And as you draw back, when you hit your anchor and just start to engage your back, the clicker goes off and makes a click. That click tells your your brain to let go. And when that happens, it's such a quick mechanoreceptor response that you just let go and you don't brace for the shot. So through all that and psycho triggers or back tension releases and good mantra, which is words, you telling yourself certain words as you go through your shot process, 
you will not have target panic to the degree that you know you struggle severely with it and it's it's basically the blueprint to get out of target panic interesting uh, there's there's so there's so many people i'm sure that this is uh intriguing to because i think we've all at some point or another had issues um and i know a lot of people have tried the back tension releases um or just you know all the different things just blind shooting at hay bales and with your eyes closed and slowly learning to to get that surprise release um i don't know it's something that i think can be talked about for a long 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 time because there's no secret quick fix unless maybe the back tension release i haven't used one but um it's interesting to hear about this it all has to do with your conscious and unconscious thoughts so you want to try to reach that unconscious mind where things just happen naturally. So like with a trad bow, you can have that clicker. I use a feather to my nose. So I set my fletching up short of my nose. So when I start to engage my back, when that feather touches my nose, that's my indicator to let go. So, you know, there's words that you can tell yourself, you know, to get through all that process, but you have to be able to do that day, like every single time. Um, so it, it helps with target panic one is the main thing, but it also, you know, helps when you're in a, in a pressured situation, rather shooting competitively or when that animal's in front of you, a lot of people just black out and they don't remember anything and they don't know why they, you know, threw a shot or missed a shot. And it's because they don't have control of their entire shot. So, yeah. Yeah, I found like for myself, I, I had that exact same same thing. I would I would almost like black out in the moment, um, and, and early on, especially when I was trying, you know, just getting into archery, and then when I made the switch, trying to target mature bucks, like leading up to those moments, it was like really nerve wracking. You had that serious buck fever, and the more experience I got, the more it became a process, and it became a process that was so ingrained in me mentally from doing it so many times. I didn't have to think about it. Like mm-hmm. I knew it was like when I saw a shooter buck, I switched it. Like I call it, it's like business time, like it's business mode. And it's just like, okay, this, now this, now this. And I wasn't necessarily thinking about it, but I had a process I was going through yet. I had control over it. And that's been like, uh, that's where I've been continuing to fine tune it is, is have a flow and you don't want to be overthinking anything, but at the same time you still want to maintain control. And, and I think the only way you can do that is to establish a process and a, a shot sequence like you're talking about and then practice this so many times, both just shooting and then also actually executing it in the field on an animal. The more you do those two things with that set process in mind, I think the better you can get at, at handling those situations. Absolutely. That's, that's what it's all about is being able to do that. And some guys can't, and that's where, you know, the system really, really helps. And I wasn't introduced to this system until this past year, actually. Uh, but I found myself doing a lot of those things. And, you know, the biggest thing is, is if you, you don't have to shoot that arrow just because you drew back that bow, doesn't mean you have to shoot it. Everything has to line up perfectly and you have to hit your, your mantra, your sequence and, and all your things that you tell yourself, you have to hit those. And if you don't, you let down. Uh, so you have to have control of that. And if you can get control, you can save yourself a lot. So I, I had control, but I didn't, I didn't know about the psycho triggers. I didn't realize, and and it made total sense when he started explaining it to me. But when, when you have a psycho trigger and you start to use it, it is so hard 
to say, oh, that looks good and shoot. I mean, it's just so hard because you're re- you're tapping into that conscious or unconscious thought. So it's D- pretty cool. Does something like that ever though fo- cause you to rush a shot? You know, where be- like in your example where you said as soon as that feather touches your nose, you touch off. What if? No, so yeah, that's where you get the mantra. So you know, mine is you know I. I I draw back and get there. That's my first thing. Draw back and get there, I tell myself. So I get back to my anchor, and then I say, watch it, keep it. So when I get the sight picture that I want with a trad bill, which with a compounded B, you know, putting the pin where you want it, looking through the peep sight, lining the pin up, lining your rings up. With a trad bill, it's the sight picture I want, and all you have to do is say, watch it, keep it. And then I say, keep pulling, keep pulling, keep pulling. And when that feather hits my nose, it goes off. You think about, you know, and I'm quoting Joel on a lot of this stuff, but when you think about aiming, if you take your finger and put it on an object, you naturally keep that finger on that object. It'll keep going back to the center. All right. So guys over aim, they, they concentrate on aiming so, so much when we naturally do it. You think about driving down a road you don't think about staying between the lines. Your brain just naturally stays between the lines. So guys are aiming way too hard when you're naturally, if you say to yourself, watch it, keep it, and put that pin where you want it, you're going to naturally, if you start to veer to the left, it's going to naturally go back to where you want it. Uh, so it, it's locking in that bow arm, watch it to keep it, keep pulling, keep pulling, and, and letting that shot go off naturally. Same with a rifle, bracing for impact. You know, you, you're applying gentle pressure to that trigger. You just don't punch the trigger. You just pressure, 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 boom, it, it goes off, and you don't even realize it went off. And when you get that surprise release, a lot of times that, that bullet's right where you want it. Uh, and it's the same with a, a bow if you practice it. Yeah, it's that, that concept of, of floating the pin. You don't need it absolutely locked, like you said, over-aimed on one target keeper one spot keeping it 100 percent crystal mm-hmm. still it's picking a spot in your mind's eye looking at that but you know allowing it to float naturally right because to your point exactly. when you when you over aim and you're you're forcing something that's nearly impossible you end up probably pulling it or pushing it in some way because you're doing something that the body just can't do and exactly and and the big thing is is Right when you're setting it up, you have to tell yourself, I don't have to shoot this arrow. So if at any point of that sequence, I get an unwanted thought in my head that is not get there, watch it, keep it, keep pulling. And as I am keep pulling, if I think, when's that feather going to touch my nose? I need to let down because it's an unwanted thought. So if if you go through that, that sequence like you should and tell yourself those phrases, and everything goes well and the shot goes off, great. And you're going to have a good shot. But if you get those unwanted thoughts and stuff like that, then you need to let down. And and that's where the practice comes in. You really have to, you know, you, this isn't a 15 arrow type of thing. You got to shoot thousands of arrows this way to get it ingrained into your system. But once you do, it's so hard to go back to an like an uncontrolled shot p- process. Yeah. I really like what you said there about the fact that you do not need to shoot this arrow. And mm-hmm. I think that is lost on a lot of people. And it's, 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 I think 
because so many of us, because we love hunting so much and we, we put so much time and effort and um, energy into trying to have that one single moment come together that I think a lot of us feel like as soon as that moment's there, you just got to gotta make it happen. You, you know, yep. you hear so many people talk about, and it was now or never, so I just I, I let, it, I let it rip. Um, you hear so many times that type of thing happening where it's not an ideal situation or you feel like, well, there's only this tiny little place I can slip it through. And I don't know, you hear stories like that, and I've been in there too. You hear stories like True. that yep. where it works out and they kill the buck. But I would... I would venture to guess that seven out of those 10 times the wrong thing happens, which is you miss the deer or you wound a deer. And, you know, that's an arrow. You can never take back an arrow when you wound a deer. And um, yeah. I think a lot of us would be would be better served. And I think, obviously, the the uh, hunting as a as a culture and community, I think a lot of us would be better served if if we could all be reminded of that a little more often, that you can't take an arrow back. You don't need to touch that trigger. You don't need to release if it's not right. If you can't make that ethical, you know, kill, mm-hmm. um, it's not worth forcing it. Yeah, that's exactly it. It all comes down to ethics, and and well, I've been there. I've 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 said the same thing. Oh, this is now or never. Let's let's let it go. And most of the time, it doesn't work out the way you want it to. So if if you can do this controlled shot process. One, it, it, it gives you a sense of calmness when that animal comes in because you don't know if you're going to shoot that arrow or not. You're only going to shoot it as if it, if things go the way that you have planned. So, you know, with that thought process, it's just because that deer's in front of you, it doesn't mean like it's right now it's going to happen. You still got to go through the, the process. So it's pretty cool. But again, I'm, I'm paraphrasing a lot of Jewel's stuff. So that is Jewel Turner at ironmindhunting.com. Uh, or Iron Mind Academy, something like that. If you do any type of search for Joel Turner, he'll his stuff will come up. Very cool, interesting, interesting stuff. And it's 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 very relevant even for me and Dan because we were just talking about how you know we're really getting into the heart of our archery practice now with our compounds and all these different things, whether it be dialing in your equipment or improving your shot sequence and how you practice. Um, no matter what kind of bow you shoot, I think this stuff is, is important to be thinking about. So I'm glad that we're able to talk about this with you, Kevin. And, yeah, absolutely. Um, and Dan, do you have any final question or thoughts for Kevin before we wrap things up? If someday I do go from compound to trad, does it make me cooler? Like, <laughs> who are who are the cooler guys? Are trad guys cooler or are compound guys cooler? <laughs> Dan, Dan needs all the hey, help he can get. You know, <laughs> I don't, I don't discriminate. You know, but uh, we always like to say you guys still have the training wheels on. So, <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, so it goes. I'll, 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 I'm proudly sporting my training wheels, but <laughs> hey, nothing wrong with that. I actually. Uh, my good friend Wade James, uh, I went over to his place the other day, and, he, and Wade's making the switch to trad this year, and and he had his prime there, and it was the first time that I shot a compound in like seven years, six, seven years, whatever it was. And uh, Wade's like, if I'm going to shoot all your stick bows, you have to shoot my my compound. I was like, no, I am not. And <laughs> I picked it up and shot it, and 
you know, it's amazing how far technology has come since I shot compound six years ago. And, and I have to admit it, it felt pretty sweet to, to shoot a bow, (laughs) shoot a bow that, you know, is, is, and you can get traditional bows that are smooth and have no hand shock and everything else, but it doesn't compare to a compound. Uh, so it's kind of cool to shoot that, not have any, you know, recoil or anything like that. A matter of fact, I was like, did it, did I shoot it? <laughs> you know, it was, it was crazy. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it was fun. Uh, you gotta, you gotta love it. Whether you're shooting a stick or a stick and string, stick and string and wheels, it is just fun to be shooting a bow. And <laughs> yeah, we're uh, all man, out there for the same reasons. Yeah. I love it. And I think. <laughs> I think right as soon as I hit stop on this recording, I'm going to go out there and shoot my bow because this has got me excited. So, <laughs> so Kevin, thank Good you. Deal. Thank you for chatting with us about whitetails and what you're doing with, with the stick and string. And if people want to hear more of what you've got going on, if they want to check out the podcast or the website, uh, where can they go? Yeah, traggeeks.com, traggeeks podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, all that good stuff. Instagram, traggeeks underscore com, Facebook, uh, pretty much all the, the social media outlets we cover. So, yeah, that's about it, Mark. Awesome. Well, Kevin, we appreciate taking the time to do this. It's been a lot of fun, and uh, hopefully we'll be hearing about some great stories from you this fall with, uh, with a nice PA whitetail underneath your bow. Sounds great. Thanks, guys. And there you guys go, another episode, 154 episodes. That's pretty crazy. I got to I gotta tell you, I'm amazed and very appreciative that so many of you have stuck with us from the very beginning and listened to us for years and years now all the way through. Uh, that is pretty cool. So, so thank you for that. A couple quick plugs before we go. Like I mentioned last week, social media. We are putting a lot more time and energy into what we're doing on the social channels, and we would love to connect with you there. That was really the best place and the best way to connect with us, to, to get a question asked or to give us feedback or to follow what's happening. We are posting a ton there on the Facebook page, new links to new content, videos, etc. That's the place to do it. Uh, Instagram is where there's lots of photography and updates from what I'm actually up to up out in the woods. YouTube is where our videos are going. I'm restarting the video blog, trying to do more there, so check those out. And on Twitter, of course, I'm I'm replying to quick questions and things like that. So search Wired to Hunt on any one of those platforms, and I would love to connect with you there. Also, be sure to check out that Holyfield film I mentioned last week. Uh, I think you guys will enjoy it. Finally, I want to give a big thank you to our partners who help keep this podcast on the air Big, big thanks to Sitka Gear, Yeti Coolers, Matthews Archery, Maven Optics, Whitetail Institute of North America, Trophy Ridge, and Huntera Maps. And finally, like I mentioned just a few seconds ago, thank you so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed this one. I hope your summer deer projects are coming along nicely, and I hope you'll stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.
Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.